So I'd like to uh, encourage you today and invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. A couple of weeks ago we were last in our study of the book of Hebrews and came to a point where the author of Hebrews indicated some subject matter that would take a little bit more than just an immature ear to understand. And so he went on to warn the reader, uh, the original readers as well as to us, to ensure that we don't grow dull of hearing and that we make sure that we demonstrate a maturity in Christ and an understanding of who he is in the word of God so that we might be able to eat the meat of the word, not so much just continue drinking on uh, the simple basic elements of the milk of the word, but that we eat on the strong deep theological parts of the word, the meat, so that we might become even more discerning between that which is right and wrong and that we might be able to have a better understanding of what the Word of God is and how it is to work in our lives. And so uh, he had that inter, uh, that sort of a, a pause, that intermission, if you will, uh, after he had introduced uh, the, an individual named Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews has been bringing us along uh, to a better understanding of the excellency of who Jesus Christ is over the angels, uh, over the priesthood. Even as a great high priest, Jesus Christ is better than these things. And he offers to us a salvation that we can't afford to reject. And so we need to be very careful about how we listen, how we understand, how we receive and believe the message of who Jesus Christ is. And so Melchizedek is an individual that the writer of Hebrews brings up in relation to the priesthood. So today we're actually going to go back to Genesis chapter 14 and get a better understanding of who this person is, uh, the context in which we learn about him, and Lord willing in the next couple of weeks be able to understand even greater how the author of Hebrews shows us how Jesus is even, not so much in the words of, uh, like, better than the priesthood or better than the angels, but how Jesus Christ's ministry as a great high priest is like Melchizedek. Uh, I have to admit to Pastor Tim, it was very difficult for me to stay out of the book of Hebrews because I wanted him to have the privilege, and as we study through Hebrews together, to take that message from Hebrews chapter 7. So I hope that in chapter 14 we will gain uh, enough information about Melchizedek, but more importantly about his God that he was a priest of, uh, that we can grow in our faith. This passage today uh, will not only help us understand uh, who the author of Hebrews is comparing with Christ, but also some insight into the man Abraham. Or at this point in Genesis 14, he's still called Abram, uh, who's going to be a central figure to come in the book of Hebrews. And please forgive me if I keep talking about the book of Hebrews as if you have not read the book of Hebrews before or that you have no familiarity with it. Uh, we keep you in suspense because what's going to happen in chapter 7? Well, you won't know until Pastor Tim preaches. And what happens in chapter 8? Well, we won't know until Richard comes. Uh, it, but there is a certain amount of excitement that as we plot our way through the book of Hebrews that we do, I hope that we have that sort of element of I don't want to miss this. 
I, I want to make sure I get a good handle on what goes before so that that which comes after can truly be appreciated. And so as we think about Abram being a central figure in, in Hebrews, particularly when we look at chapter 11, we'll have a better understanding based on what we understand from today. If you will try to picture the world about 4,200 years ago, over four millennia, now I know there are movies and novels and different other depictions throughout history of what life was like. But about 4,200 years ago, when Abram was not so much the old man waiting for a child, which by the way, on Father's Day, he's my hero because I think I'm about halfway to the point where Abraham was starting to think about having children, right? So maybe I'm about halfway there. And Amy's worried and laughing at the same time, which like Sarah did, right? If you think about Abraham, we often think of him in terms of what he was when he was waiting for this child, Isaac. And what happens with his family after that, that we forget that Abram was a young, healthy, strong man. Uh, He was a man called by God to leave his family of idol worshipers. A man who, in the context here, has just defeated the four kings from the east who had taken over much of the land around the Jordan River, around the Dead Sea, plundering the five kings or the five armies, not to be confused with orcs or goblins or elves or even dwarves, but these are all just five armies of men that had just been pillaged because 4,200 years ago and many centuries since then, that's what we do. We take over people. We, we pillage lands and we take their goods and we provide safety and com- comfort for ourselves. But in this region... Abram had just heard of his nephew Lot being captured by these kings, took it upon himself to not only defeat these kings, but more importantly to deliver his his nephew Lot from their captivity. He was a man who accumulated wealth and had become the leader of the Hebrew clan with an army of servants who at this point had gained the respect of those kings in the surrounding areas. He's a man who made an oath to the Most High God. This title for God being presented early on here in Genesis is one that will be used throughout the Old Testament, which is from two words, first being El, which simply means mighty one. It's not just simply used for God. It's a, it's a term that's used for any strong leader. But it is one that certainly fits who God is, and so it is used of God. But it's connected with a, a descriptive word, El Yon. So we have here El El Yon. So the mighty one, and El Yon literally means one uh, who is the most high. The one who exceeds everyone else. And this certainly fits the context of the book of Hebrews, does it not? As we're speaking about Jesus Christ, who is far better than all of these other elements that he's being compared to. But Abram had made a covenant. He had made an oath with the Most High God. And when he encounters these two kings in chapter 14 in our passage today, these two kings who are now coming to celebrate his victory, 
one of them being a righteous king, one of them being a wicked king, this would be an opportunity for Abraham to prove his or test his faith after a great victory. Something that we may be able to relate to when we have victory in our life, when we overcome, or maybe when we are able to celebrate the blessings of God that we can clearly see in our life. That circumstances may come our way, or maybe different individuals will come into our life. And they'll test us to to see just what we are committed to. Are we committed to the victory? Are we committed to the blessing? Are we committed to the life in which we can enjoy? Are we committed to the one who gives it? So if you will follow along as I begin reading in our passage, Genesis chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse 17. Speaking of Abram, after his return from the defeat of Cador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest, I should, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. God, we come to your word to feed. We come for your help, to your word for help. And Lord, we ask now that your spirit who inspired and has preserved these words for us today would now speak clearly. We need no new revelation. We just simply need for you to remind us of your truth. We simply need for you to impart your truth and may it be engrafted into our souls so that it might cause us to grow more like Christ, to help us to see Christ, to help us enjoy Christ, to help us make much of Christ. So, Father, I ask now that as we come to study your word, that you would help us. Give us eyes that we might see and cause us to understand. Open our ears that we may hear and that we would hear to the point of obedience. Father, speak to your people today. Help us to see Christ. And again, it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Again, here in this passage, the first king that we want to talk about today, Melchizedek, notice that in verse 18 he brings both refreshment for those who have just been very busy in battle, but he also brings elements of fellowship. Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High God reminds us of something that um, Pastor Pastor Tim along with the help of Jack, maybe Jack with the help of Pastor Tim, I'm not sure which, which it was, Uh, but did a very fine job in helping us understand our need for to be with God. But also reminding us that it is a very dangerous thing to be with God, but that Jesus Christ is what makes it possible. He's the one who stands in our place. As a matter of fact, if you did not 
was not here, or perhaps you misplaced your notes. There's still some copies of that outline in the notes uh, out in the welcome area uh, in the foyer. I would encourage you, if you do not have a copy of that, that is a great resource for you in your understanding of what the priesthood is all about. But we understand here in Genesis for the first time, man's need for a priest. Now we can study world history and understand that because of the various religions that existed even at this time, and you can imagine after the Tower of Babel and God scattered all the peoples uh, across the world by confusing their language of how many religions that there probably were at this point, and we can imagine simply because of how many religions still exist today and how we keep on mounting all the number of religions that are there, that there's always this idea of priesthood. There's always that one holy person who's going to intercede between the deity and God or the deities and God. And here Melchizedek, being described specifically as a priest, reminds us that there is that need for God. But Melchizedek, in just who he is, identifies the God who we need fellowship with. Because while there are many choices out there for you to follow, there are many paths, if you will, to follow in your effort to gain whatever it is that you're looking for to fulfill your life. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. He was a priest of one who was mighty. He was a priest of one who was great. But the one who is mightier and greater than all the rest. The God Most High. And so, He brings in this time of victory for Abraham bread and wine. Again, first to refresh those who had been fighting. But we can't also forget that bread and wine are elements of fellowship that we even enjoy as believers today, do we not? Every month. Fourth Sunday of the month. Lord willing, next Sunday will be that Sunday that we as believers will share uh, commemorating when Jesus broke bread and poured and shared wine with his disciples before he died. That bread and wine are the elements that we are to remember the death of His body and the shedding of His blood. This is the means through His priestly work that we can stand safely before God. We can stand righteously before God. We can have true communion with God. We can enjoy God forever because Jesus Christ gave His body to be crucified. He shed His blood that our sins may be forgiven. Without His perfect sacrifice that we celebrate each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the wrath of God would still rest on us. However, as Isaiah makes it so beautifully clear, He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten of God. He was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why? So that we could all be fulfilled as we glorify Him. He makes it possible for us to enjoy God's presence without fear of being punished and being delivered, or the wrath of God being delivered upon us. And Melchizedek was a priest in his day of the Most High God, indicating that even back in Genesis chapter 4, we're told that Seth, who was 
Adam and Eve's third mentioned son had a son, Enosh, and it was through Enosh that at that time people started calling upon the name of Jehovah. Early on. So doubtless throughout the generations that were going to be between Enosh and Abraham, there were many who would be calling upon the name of the Lord and many who would need the priest to go before them on their behalf. The the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness, which he's described here as being one of the kings. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. King of Salem being significant in the fact that Salem, by virtually every conservative theologian, agrees that it's just simply the, the early name of the city, Jerusalem, for which we're reminded of being the foundation of peace. Psalm 76 verse 2 refers to it as such. So we have this king who is the first priest that we read about as Moses is dictating for the people of Israel their history. This king from Salem who just happens to be a priest of the Most High God. That's the reason why it was requested and as we were were focused on during the early part of our scripture reading from Zechariah chapter 6 verse 13 because it foretells of another who will come. One who is referred to as a branch. One who will build the temple of the Lord. One who shall bear royal honor because there will be a day in which there was, as it was in Zechariah's day, a priest who will sit on the throne. When Jesus Christ comes back as the great high priest, he will be sitting on the throne. He will be a kingly priest, one who will rule his people, but he will also be the means through which his people will have access to God. Jesus Christ fulfills that for us today, and that's all I will sort of mention about Hebrews chapter 7 for Tim's benefit. But that's who Jesus Christ is. And Melchizedek, is brought up in Hebrews because of his relationship that is similar to Jesus Christ. But what I would like for us to focus on, not so much about Melchizedek, but the fact that he is showing us the God who we need fellowship with. But he does more than that. He also shows us the God who we need to bless us. Where does blessing come from in life? If we look back in Abram's life, Chapter 12, the first three verses, we're told that the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all all the families of the earth shall be blessed." We get insight about what this blessing truly is in the book of Ephesians where we have access to all the spiritual blessings through Christ. Again, this priest, this priesthood that Jesus Christ fulfills for us gives us access to the God who we need to bless us. Melchizedek reiterates this promise as well as the confirmation of the current blessing of victory of the four kings. He tells Abram that, you know what? God is the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. He is the one who's blessed you. But it's just simply 
a follow-through from what God had promised him back in Genesis chapter 12. God had called him out, and God said that I will bless you, and it's going to be through you that all the nations of the world will be blessed. As our scripture reading earlier in the service from Psalm 57 mentions in verse 2, the psalmist says, I cry out to who? God Most High. El Elyon. To God who does what? Fulfills His purpose for me. That's His blessing. That's His calling upon our life. And who is the God that does that? The God Most High. The God that we need to bless us. The God that we need to get direction from. The God who we need to give us hope. The God who will carry through. That term fulfills his, or that phrase fulfills his ter- purpose is a word that relates to time and that it being over. So it gives us a picture that God Most High is the one who works things out so when it comes to an end, it will be complete. Very similar to what Paul says. That I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a work in your life will be faithful to do what? Complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. The God Most High is a God of blessing that brings it to fruition. God is one who calls one out from his family to be the one who blesses all the nations of the world to fruition. This is something Abraham can't mess up. He has already had an opportunity to do that earlier in Genesis. When he takes his wife in a time of famine to Egypt and comes up with this clever little tale, even though there was just enough truth in it to be not a complete lie, right? Because Sarah was a relative of his, but let's say that you're my sister, so that Pharaoh or any other leader in Egypt takes you for me and leaves me for who knows what. But God, even in that, protected both Abraham and Sarah, brought them through, and even through that, they left Egypt richer with more possessions than they did when they entered Egypt. That is God's blessing. Now, don't confuse that with what you may have flipped through on one of those channels on TV in which, hey, that means that's, your, that's the way you get your pot of gold. All you need to do is be called of God and here's your blessing. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But for God's purposes, He will fulfill them as He has called you out to be the subject of His blessing. We find blessing from no other source than from God. And Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, identifies for us the God that we need worship with and the God that we need to bless us. However, we come to a second king. He's named for us earlier in chapter 14, Barah. He's the king of Sodom. Now earlier in chapter 13, when Lot had made his woeful choice, when given the opportunity to select which side he wanted to go, because his family and servants and entourage was getting so large in, with Abram's large entourage and family and servants that they needed to go separate ways. Lot chose this very fertile, lush land and he went in that direction and God, through his word, indicates for us 
that that was a very dangerous land because it was a land of wicked people, people who were exceedingly wicked. And so Barak, king of Sodom, who which, by the way, was one of those five kings that was attacked by the previous four, that Abraham delivered in spite of who he was, he comes to celebrate the victory as well. And in verse 22 he says, I'm sorry, verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, just give me all of my people back, but all the goods that you were able to recover, recover from that pillage, you can keep all that stuff. Just let me have all of my people, all of my wicked sinful people. He didn't say that, but that list, that's who we know he's talking about. Let my people all come back home, but all, this, all the other treasures that they stole from Sodom, you can have it. Now, for many of us, we'd say, well, that's exactly what we deserve. We delivered you from this enemy that you couldn't take care of yourself, so I deserve some payment for that. You should be paying me for taking care of you and delivering your people, allowing them to still have the breath that they breathe. But Abram says something very, very interesting. He said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And I made an oath that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap Not even part of that flip-flop that sticks between your toes. I wouldn't even take that much from you. Lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Abram was a man of conviction. Yes, are there times we wonder about that through the course of his life? But here was a conviction that he had to an oath that he made to God Most High. What does this look like for you, for you to lift up your hand and and make an oath to God? What does it mean when we talk about making a decision for Christ? When we talk about dedicating your life to... What does that mean? Does it sound like this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord like Joshua? Does it sound like and they left their nets and followed him like Peter and Andrew? Or they left their boats like James and John? Does it sound like Daniel who resolved not to devile himself with the king's food and the king's wine? Does it sound like Abram in chapter 12 where we read Abram went as the Lord told him? You see, we've got to trust God to lead all the way, just like Abram did. And we have to say, we have taken an oath before God. My commitment to God is true to the end. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a very compelling book early on in his life, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he says, So many people come to church with a genuine desire to hear what we have to say, speaking about ministers. Yet, they are always going back home 
with the uncomfortable feeling that we are making it too difficult for them to come to Jesus. Hmm. Oh, we're ready to go hear some good preaching, but when we leave, we're, man, they're making it too hard to follow after Christ. Which, to a great part of that, I say amen. It should be very difficult for you to say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. It should be something that you can't do on your own. It's something you can't do on your own. It should be something that you think about the cost of following Jesus Christ as His disciples saying, man, I can't afford to do that. But yet, the Spirit of God, when He convicts you of your sin, compels you to say, but I must have Him. I can't do it. It costs too much. It would pay, be too much of a price for me to pay, but I must. Now that's a great sentiment about discipleship. And as much as we may agree with it, we have to be very mindful of one thing. That sadly, through the rest of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, which he was a very honorable person in his efforts to free the Jews from the Nazis and and to be a compelling voice for freedom, and to even from a theological perspective sound as if Jesus Christ was the most important thing. Sadly, he was affected by the secular philosophy around him to the point where he would reject that the Scriptures being inerrant. That he would reject that you can't trust everything that's in God's Word. That he would reject that Jesus Christ is the only way and that he believed that basically in a universalist means of salvation that everybody eventually will be saved. That's sad. At some point in his life, and please don't misunderstand because of the, the heroic things that he did with his life makes it very difficult for me to stand in judgment of him or anybody else for that matter. But we need to be very cautious that we might know some very important truths. But if we get challenged by the world and its philosophy... Our faith may be proven to be false and that we won't raise our hand and say, well, wait a minute, but I made a commitment to the one true high God, most high. We may be overwhelmed with the wiles of the devil. We may be overwhelmed by things that are not the greater thing. We We may allow our gospel to get tangled up in humanism. We may allow our gospel to get tangled up in things that aren't necessary. We may get, allow our gospel to be watered down to the point where no one needs to acknowledge their sin, much less repent of it. We may allow our gospel to get so messed up that it looks nothing like the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope that it gives. So a word of warning. Let us not be so quick to say, well, I'm like Abraham. I'm following after God. I know that His truth is secure unless we're ready to say, hey, I made an oath. Not that I'm perfect. Not that I'm without fault. But Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and from Him I cannot turn away. From Him I cannot say no. I must show that I am truly His through my life. And there's a way in which Abram demonstrated that commitment. It wasn't just simply through words, but it was through his action. Now cautiously, let's 
Consider what Abram did. And not only did he not take what the king of Sodom had offered him, but he gave a tithe of all that he had accumulated to Melchizedek, the priest. Let's note a few things first. There was no commandment for him to do that. (laughs) There was no element in which it said, now Abram, when you win a battle, you make sure you give a tenth of it to to the local priest. There isn't. There was no requirement on behalf of any service that Melchizedek had performed as a priest for Abraham that deserved it or merited it. This was simply a free act of gift of grace. That Abraham said, because of who you are, I want to share, aptly put in Richard's prayer during the offering, that we just simply return back a a portion of what we have. I've attended Cornerstone for a number, a few years now, and I can't remember a message in which there was a compelling, you must give, you must give, you must give. And I'm, it's not that I'm waiting for one. Because if you have one, you might want to check which version of the Bible they're using, if they are using the Bible, because there's not one in there. He said, well, wait a minute, preacher. You got that whole law thing, you got the Moses thing, you got the tents, you got all these offerings. Exactly. That's exactly what you have. But what we have through Scripture in Melchizedek's priesthood demonstrates it. That existed before the law. That existed before Moses. That existed before the commandments. That the giving was out of joy in our hearts back to God. He gave a tenth. If that's what you want to use as a standard for your giving, just do it out of the goodness and the graciousness of your heart and joy and gratitude towards God who gave it to you. Because remember, who are they serving? The God Most High, the one who what? Possesses heaven and earth. But He gave a tithe to the one who possesses it all. One old commentary simply says, giving the tenth was a practical acknowledgement of the divine priesthood of Melchizedek, for the tenth was according to general custom, offered and presented to deities in different religions in that day, but it wasn't a requirement. From Luther to Spurgeon to MacArthur, many scholars agree that tithing is not required for Christians. It's also noteworthy that with regard to Christian liberality, Spurgeon speaking here, there are no rules laid down in the Word of God. I remember hearing somebody say, I should like to know exactly what I ought to give. Yes, dear friend, no doubt you would. But you are not under a system similar to that which by the Jews were obliged to pay tithes to the priests. If there were any such rule laid down in the Gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving and take away all the bloom from the fruit of your liberality. There's a perspective you won't hear on TV. But that's the Bible. That's what it teaches us. That's what it models for us. And that is what great men who studied the Word of God share with us to help us understand it. Now don't misunderstand me. 
In Proverbs chapter 3, we're very familiar with trust in the Lord with all thine heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. But he goes on just a few verses later to say, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There is a principle in which when you give back to God, He will restore back to you. The New Testament teaches us as we give unto the Lord, He will continue to make it possible for us to keep giving if, he, if we demonstrate that we're faithful to give. But let us not get trapped in some ritualistic, well, I've got to give this much, or I've got to do this, or I've got to... No. As a pastor, and I think that Pastor Charlie would share this with me, if anything was put into an offering plate or in the Christian growth group this morning that was given out of compulsion, we welcome you to take that back. And as a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, as reluctant as it may, well, maybe do we really want to make that statement? Um... But if that's the attitude of your heart, please understand that God is not honored by that. And if you simply think that, well, I've given 10% so God should be pleased, you're welcome to take that back too. It's, it's, It's a mockery. But if whatever you were able to give, whenever you gave it, if you gave it because you were happy, with how God has blessed your life and you just simply wanted to return back a portion so that the kingdom of God could go further, then praise the Lord. That gift is well received and God will be honored by that gift and He will make much of it. But let's not misunderstand what Abram was doing. He wasn't trying to pay off Melchizedek. He wasn't paying for some service. He was just simply using Melchizedek as a representative, as a priest of the Most High God, as the recipient of how thankful he was for this victory. That demonstrated that he was truly committed to God. But we don't want to learn what through what he did, but what he didn't do, as we've already talked about. There was an independence from the exceeding wicked and sinners against the Lord. He didn't want to associate with them. It was a funny story. Amy and I, when we were at Piedmont, we came to know one of the uh, trustees that was there. And I remember him sharing a story about how R.J. Reynolds uh, wanted to give money to the school. And if you know anything about Piedmont Bible College back in the 80s, we could use the money. Uh, There were lots of needs. Lots of professors never got paid. And when they got paid, it was not nearly what they earned. And But R.J. Reynolds, at this point of the year, was like, hey, we've got this huge amount of money we'd just like to give to the school. And the school made a decision, saying, you know what, due to its, you know, the connection it has with the use of tobacco and, uh, and the testimony that the school simply, you know, we appreciate that, but we, we, we're not going to take that. Had a conviction. Now, the trustee that I was speaking about said, you know what, we'll donate that money to our church. We'll clean up that filthy lucre. Uh, and I struggle with that very thing, too. You know, well, well, let's just take the world's money. Let's just go ahead and say, yeah, we'll go ahead and do the, the world's work. And uh, even as a pastor, I, I, I think of times when 
I would be presented with ideas of how we could raise money. Well, let's have a churchyard sale, or let's let's have a bazaar at the church, or let, let's sell tickets for stuff at the church. And I'm not speaking for anybody here, not Pastor Charles or any member of this church, but just for me, I, I just I'm not comfortable with that. I believe that the Lord's work will be supported through the Lord's people, as the Lord provides for them. Why? I just personally have a conviction that I don't want the world saying, hey, the reason why they got that beautiful church building over there is because they gave them some money. What a testimony that would be. Oh, they paid that loan off early because, hey, you know, that, that company over there stepped it up and gave them about half a million dollars and poof, it was gone. I, I, I don't want that testimony. I want the testimony to be the Lord gave us a vision, the Lord gave us direction to do something, the Lord, the Lord provided for it. There was an independence from the wickedness and the sinfulness of Sodom in Abram's life. He recognized that the price was going to be way too high for whatever they were were providing to give to the point where he said, I do not even want to strap off your sandal lest you say he was able to tighten up his sandal with my shoelace. How far can we take that principle in our life? You think about the education of your children. This is not a private, public, Christian school debate issue here. I'm just simply, who are you going to let raise your children? doesn't mean that they don't need to learn about the different things that you may not have the capacity to teach them. But who are you going to let raise your children? Where are you going to work? What, what are you going to allow to support you? I mean, there's all different types of ways in which we need to think about how we're going to keep ourselves separated from this world while yet living in the middle of it. Hard decisions. Difficult decisions. But decisions that can change the way the world looks at you as a believer. Very important things. The dangerous thing is that we can start making a list right here. (laughs) We can start... Summing up and, 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 and judging everybody, well, okay, well, oh, you do, you got money from there, or you're getting support from there, you're letting people influence you. And before we start, you know, we, we got this list of things that will lead us down the wrong road. That wasn't Abram's intention. Abram's intention was just one to make sure I want no one else to get credit but the God Most High, the one who Melchizedek was the priest of. To give you somewhat of a picture of warning. The writer of Hebrews has already given us a warning early in the book about not hardening our hearts as those did who were in the wilderness. But in Psalm 78, the psalmist describes how the children of Israel failed to remain faithful to God Most High. Verses 16 and 17, he says, He made streams come out of the rock, caused waters to flow down like rivers, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Verses 33 through 36, He made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered God was their rock, the the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths and they lied to him with their tongues. 
Verse 55 through 57. He drove out nations before them. He appointed them for the possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the God most high and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. Even God's own people who had received a blessing had received deliverance from captivity in Egypt, had been delivered from Pharaoh's hand, had been brought and ushered into a land flowing with milk and honey. They knew the God Most High. But they flattered Him with their tongues. They deceived themselves. And they rejected Him. They resisted Him. They were treacherous. They rebelled against the Most High. Melchizedek was a priest of the God Most High. And through his ministry, we're reminded of the God that we need to know. The God that we need fellowship with. Also the God who we need to bless us. And more importantly, the Lord God we are to commit to. Can you say, as our theme through the book of Hebrews says, our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive an eternal reward in Christ? Is that what you're committed to? Or does the world come in and try to, well, hey, just let us help you out here. You're such a blessing here at work. Let's do this for you. You know what? You're such a good, kind person to everything. You've done so many good things. Let us, let us sort of become a part of your life. Or do we say no? I made an oath to the God Most High. I'll serve Him and my hope is in Him forever until He comes back. That's when I receive my reward. That's when I enter into a land that is better. That's when I find out truly that Jesus Christ is eternally great forever. Let's pray.